1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Joanna Ebenstein about the new book, Frederick Rusch and his Thesaurus Anatomicus, a morbid guide. A lavishly illustrated guide to the magnum opus of the great 17th century anatomist, Master El Artist and collector of specimens. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. So, can you tell us more about yourself? Yeah.
2: So, my background is art and history. So, I always did art when I was young and I ended up studying intellectual history in college. And what intellectual history is, or was at least at that point, is kind of like material culture studies today. So, looking at um, artifacts from the past, be those artifacts, um, tracks of philosophy or novels or films in order to understand the mind of the past. And then also to understand by our own responses to this, the mind of the present and how much we've changed as a culture. And so that's very much the lens that I end up, ended up applying, um, to art and anatomy, I would say. Um, and so basically, um, the way that I got into this area of research is after studying intellectual history at university, I went to Europe for the first time, or the first extended time anyway, <clears throat> and I was really, really blown away by how many um, artifacts, objects, artworks that I saw that that expressed the idea of death, but intermingled with beauty in a way that growing up in suburban California in the 1980s, I'd never had access to. And so this really started a project that still continues today of investigating these objects, um, again, as a way to learn about their own time and also to question our own time. Why do these things look so strange to us today when obviously they were commonplace and even um, you know very much lauded in their own time?
1: So you focus on quite morbid things. (laughs) I was wondering, how did you arrive to this field?
2: Yeah, so I guess as a, as a, what I, my, my quick answer is I think all children are interested in death, right? Um, that, you know, you see a dead bird, it's as fascinating as a live bird in a sense. And for whatever reason, I didn't outgrow it. So that's my quick answer, but I would also say, um, You know, I'm Jewish and my grandparents on my father's side were Holocaust survivors. So I think for many, many Jews, this idea of death and morbidity, you might say, um, are very, very much a part of our lives in a way they're not for a lot of people in the Western world. You know, like I would not be here if it wasn't for the Holocaust. My grandparents would still live in Vienna. Um, So it's like in our own lived experience, history has ended in a sense. There's been like an apocalyptic moment. Um, in which unthinkable atrocities and death occurred. So I think um, being in the United States, which is where I grew up, which is so, especially California, which is where I ended up really growing up, really does not think about anything dark or unpleasant. And to do so is considered um, aberrant, (laughs) to say the (laughs) least. Um, But I was always interested in it. And I'm lucky to have had supportive parents who supported my interest in this stuff and... I just kind of never outgrew it.
1: And in your career journey, did you have mentors that really supported you and perhaps inspired you?
2: Absolutely. And um, one of them really comes to mind when I think about this project. There's a man named Michael Sappel. Michael Sappel was a medical historian at the National Library of Medicine in, um, in the United States. And he did this incredible exhibition called Dream Anatomy. And I encourage any listener out there who's interested in this subject to look it up. It's, it's got an online component. And it was just a smart fascinating exhibition about anatomical art looked at through an art historical lens. And um, what I love about Mike Sappel is he's not afraid to say things that a lot of other medical historians will kind of skirt around. So he really addresses um, the issues of spectacle in this world, the issues of sexuality, the um, also, of course, the problematic aspects of how bodies were acquired in order to obtain this knowledge right uh, so he and he was a man whose work I really admired and I looked him up and I went to see a talk he gave and we ended up becoming friends and he was very very much a mentor to me um so he was the main one in this
1: realm I would say and as a mentor yourself what would you say to our student listeners I would say
2: what I always say when people would come to the more of anatomy library so you know I'll say really quickly a little trajectory of Morbid Anatomy just so listeners have a sense of what it is. So um, this project that I do now is called Morbid Anatomy. I started it in 2007. And I started it because I was really intrigued with the things that we were talking about, right? These objects at the intersections of of art and medicine, death and culture, um, and many, many other things. And um, I was putting together a photo exhibition about medical museums. So for your listeners, medical museums are Um, the best known one in the United States is called the Mütter Museum. They're these museums that hold um, human bodies preserved in liquid and also kind of simulacrum of human bodies, skeletal material, all sorts of things, in order at least ostensibly to teach medical students. Um, But of course, today, they're also a place where curious people go. I think people who are Interested in in facing death in a way that's not really possible in our culture anymore, um, so I did a photo exhibition that documented some of the greatest of these museums around Europe and the United States, and I started this blog as a way to um, to kind of sort the material that I was using. Really, that was its only its only function, and, and to kind of synthesize all the stuff that I've been reading and thinking about. And almost immediately, I started getting emails from people um, who it really hit a nerve for a lot of people, especially women, for some reason. This Mm. this area was something that that I got a lot of emails from women who were like, oh, my God, this is something that's always interested me. I've never seen one talk about it this way. And it kind of had a life of its own. And in fact, Mike Sappel, the man I mentioned who was my mentor was one of the first people to figure out it was me doing it. I used just my initials at the time um, because I was also supporting myself as a graphic designer doing children's publishing. So I didn't want my bosses to know that I had this (laughs) this, this weird interest, but this had its own life. And people began to ask if they could access some books that I had on the bibliography. So I opened up this library, a physical library in Brooklyn. And then we started doing exhibitions and then um, flea markets and classes and things like taxidermy. And then I met this woman named Tracy Hurley Martin, who saw in this the potential for something bigger. And so for three years, morbid anatomy was a museum in Brooklyn, New York, unfortunately, because of financial um, limitations and how expensive everything is in New York City, it was impossible. And we ended up having to close. So now we're back to our roots. Um, But why did I mention morbid anatomy? I'm sorry. I totally lost my train of thought.
0: Do you <laughs> so, remember?
1: What, yeah. How, what would you say to our student listeners, especially uh, the ones who would be interested in these kind of subjects that are not exactly, yes. you know?
2: <laughs> yes. So I was going to say, is I used to get student groups in the morbid anatomy <laughs> library and, and they would ask me like, how do I do this? And my mm-hmm. advice is always, and will continue to always be, do what you love and what you're passionate about, do it exactly how you would like to see it done and people will come. That has been my experience. When I look back at all of the art projects I did, all of the big ideas I had in my youth, um, if I had had to choose one that would have been successful and still be alive today, I would never have chosen this one. You know what I mean? It makes no sense, but I think because it was so true to me, it was then true to other people. And so that's my advice is if there's something you love, stick with it, go down that rabbit hole, go down all the rabbit holes and record it and take it very seriously and do something beautiful with it. And people will come. That has been my experience.
1: Oh, I love it. All right. So we have you here today to talk about your book and what book are we talking about?
2: <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about a new book about Frederick Um, I think it's called uh, Frederick Roosch. And his *Anatomicus Thesaurus*, a morbid guide. So, um, this is an edited volume. I should be quick to say I am not a Roche specialist. Um, I am a Roche enthusiast, and I I edited it. So I put together the roster of scholars and curators who wrote about it. Um, I I designed the book, and I also. Um, did a lot of work trying to access as many of the images as I could. And, and so we could be able to put those in the book. So the book is overall my vision, but not my, not my scholarly area of expertise. I just want to start <laughs> with that disclaimer.
1: So what inspired you to take on this project?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, so Frederick um is a, I had known about Frederick Reusch for a long time. And just so your your listeners have a sense of what we're talking about before I jump in here. So Frederick Reusch was an anatomist. He lived during the Dutch golden age. He lived from the 17th until the early 18th century, He lived till 94, which is pretty remarkable for that, that era. Um, And he, he was so many things that when you put them all together, don't make sense to us today. So he was, a very famous uh, physician and anatomist. And he even, um, from what I understand, figured out some things about the lymphatic system, was able to model them in a way no one else had before. So he was like a, you know, forefront of medical knowledge of that time. He had also trained as a botanist and he had been an apothecary. Uh, he also was a museologist and a preparator and an embalmer. And so, Because he was such a big deal in Amsterdam at the time, uh, he was the head of midwives. He was the head of forensic sciences. They didn't call it that at the time. I think it's called police medicine or something like that. Um, And I think he was also head of the anatomist guild. He had access to cadavers in a way that um, very few people did at that time. And um, unlike our own time, there does not seem to have been much how do we say taboo against using these cadavers for what I would say are objects at the intersection of art and medicine and religion in a way that, again, when you see them, just really baffles the mind. And so I really urge any listener who this sounds interesting to, to just Google Frederick Reusch image search, and you'll see these incredible specimens he left behind. Some of them there are photographs of, some of them, many more of them are just um, existent in etchings by a illustrator that he hired to um, illustrate a book that he published about his own museum collection. He was called in his time the Rembrandt of anatomical specimens, and today people call him often the artist of death, and I think these phrases really capture... um, the paradoxical nature of his work. Um, what he's best known for are these tableaus. None of them exist anymore. We only have these etchings. But when you see them, you almost can't believe they exist. And they're um, they feature posed fetal skeletons, um, real fetal skeletons, in kind of little landscapes made from hardened arteries and mesentery, um, gallstones and kidney stones. And they're holding emblems of mortality. And they when he exhibited them in his home museum, they also had little texts that um, were kind of memento mori themed texts. So a memento mori is an object intended to remind you of your own mortality so that you live the the most perfect life you can. And in this case, it would be a Christian life, right? And in, in um, the Netherlands at that time, a Calvinist probably, or at least Protestant Christian. Um, and so these objects, when you see these images, they they absolutely blow your mind. And you you just end up with so many questions. How, how could these exist? What were they? Um, what did people think of them at the time? And so when I came across his work, like many, many people who do, I was just really fascinated. And so I read a lot of scholarly articles. And when I read these articles um, that talked about um, his collection and talked about his self-published guide to his home museum, which was called Thesaurus Anatomicus, um, I really, really felt a strong desire to read that that text that he had published, because I felt that if one could read that, these paradoxical things would make sense in some way. Um, Because again, these were things that nobody at the time looked at and said they were improper or impolite or perverse. They just loved them, (laughs) came to Mm -hmm. see them. And I just wanted to understand that I wanted to read the text. I wanted to read what he had said and what other people had said. I knew there was poetry and momentum or reverse. And so in the back of my mind, it's a project I've been trying to do for a long time. And I, I published books with other kind of trade publishers and I pitched it to them and they're like, no, too niche. I tried to get grants to get it done and it never worked. And then I met this man named Matthew, um, Oh my goodness. I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. My apologies. Uh, My friend Matthew, and I will remember his name in the course of this talk. Mm -hmm. uh, I met him through a friend of a friend. My friend Mark Pilkington introduced me to him and he worked at MIT and he's interested in the same things I am. And so I, I just sent him a little proposal and he was interested and that's how it came to be. Um, and so for me, the reason I wanted this book to happen is I wanted there to be a treasury of all of Frederick Roche's stuff in one place, um, which did not exist. I wanted information about Frederick Roche and I wanted the translation of his guide to his home museum. And so we were able to hire Richard Falk, who was a friend of mine in college. He studied, um, he's a classicist who also translated a lot of Baroque poetry. He was the translator of the book and he did a beautiful job and, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that it does for others. What it does for me is bringing all of these Roche things together to give us a picture of this very, very difficult to wrap your head around historical moment.
1: All right. So let's dive into the book. And of course, the Frederick Roche is absolutely extraordinary person. So do we know much about his early days, like his childhood? Where, Where did it all start for him?
2: That's a great question. Um, He, from what I understand, he always was interested in science and medicine and probably art, too. He married the daughter of an artist or an architect. I can't remember which. um, And his children, one of his daughters in particular, went on to become a famous painter. You probably know that. Her name is Rachel Roche. So art was definitely a part of his life. um, But it seems like science was the driving force or at least a desire to uncover the structures of nature and preserve them and present them. In a way, and so he started as an apothecary, apothecary, I believe, and then he ended up going and studying medicine in Leiden as a young man, and then came back and came back to Amsterdam and became a, this renowned anatomist and um, physician, and like very very important in the city in the city's history, and a wealthy man. From what I mean, he lived in this beautiful townhouse where he kept his his home museum. And so the other thing Roche was known for, besides being this excellent doctor, is for being an embalmer that defied uh, the public's imagination of what was possible. So if any of your listeners have ever gone to a museum such as the Mütter Museum or other medical museums, you'll have seen these, what are called wet specimens, right? And these are um, human bodies or human body parts in jars of different sorts of preservative liquid. Usually they're quite pallid. They are lifeless. They look like dead things. Uh, Royce's specimens don't look like that. They still, as people describe them at the time, and I think it's perfect, they have the flush of life. And this was because he developed this incredible technique that no one exactly knows how um, he was able to inject even the smallest capillaries with this substance that included wax and included um, pigments of various sorts, a red in particular, that makes it look, um, like there's still blood in the system essentially. And he also took great care to put glass eyes, um, and to, to make them very beautiful. And so his daughter, Rachel Roche, she went on to be a very famous still life painter. And it, it said that she helped him, uh, create these lace cuffs and things. And so it kind of, they made them beautiful. They covered up the places where cuts were and you know, what this is really dealing with as well, and Roish has been quoted on several occasions as talking about this, is there's a problem that that all medical art has, whether you're talking about two-dimensional art or three-dimensional art or actual specimens, which is looking at cadavers can be distasteful, you know, for many people to say the least. How do you make it how do you take that distastefulness out and make it more accessible? And so by making it beautiful is the answer. And he really, really made these specimens beautiful. And so, you know, at in his time, they were so lifelike that he even got accused of sorcery of someone Mm -hmm. thinking that that he was not doing this by natural means, but of course it was by natural (laughs) means. And when Peter the Great which we'll probably talk about later. At some point, Peter the Great came. He was doing a tour of Europe and looking for collections for his own Kunstkammer in St. Petersburg. He bought Reusch's collection. Reusch then rebuilt a second collection. <laughs> uh, but he bought Reusch's collection as it then stood, supposedly including um, the two kind of secret formulas of Reusch. So one of them was this injection, how he did this injection technique, right? And the other was the liquid in which he put the body parts, which he called... Uh, liquidus balsamicus if i'm correct or liquid Mm -hmm. balsamicus and no one's sure what's in there because no one was able to replicate it that recipe has not been found it's possible that he never sent it along or gave something false
1: so basically he it's it's only him and his daughter who knew this the whole process of embalming that he had
2: we don't know if his daughter knew it or i don't know for a fact it's possible she knew it i know it's said that she helped out in the lab and his son went on to be an i think to be an anatomist as well so he he might have passed it on to his children i don't know i don't know again i'm not i'm not the race specialist so i don't know the answer to that
1: so what exactly is thesaurus anatomicus yeah so
2: a thesaurus, we all know the word thesaurus, right? It's a collection of, of words that have like meanings, but in its, in this time, a thesaurus also could mean like a cabinet and or a collection, right? So in Royce's home, he had, um, I believe it was eight rooms dedicated to his collection. Each one was a thesaurus. So oh. he published a book um, for each cabinet the source 6, 7, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight with illustrations and with full description of the objects within mm. the quotations that you would see next to it, um, the scientific provenance. So, you know, where each object came from and at the same time it's metaphysical meaning. Um, and he exhibited these in his home, in his home museum which was open to the public. I don't, I'm not sure if he charged or not. I think he did. Um, but he would give tours of this when people came by to to check it out. And of course, this is the time of the great cabinets of curiosity, right? So before we had public museums, people would collect all sorts of things from all over the world, especially at this point, this age of discovery, when all of these incredible things were coming back from far, far away. And they would, this wealthy gentlemen in particular, would put together these massive collections that they would make open to other collectors and dignitaries and things like this in their homes. So it's not in its own time. This was this was a fairly common practice, though so his, his really became much closer to what we would think of as a museum, as far as I can see.
1: So you must have seen a lot of his works. And I wonder... So what what are your impressions and especially your earliest impressions of his work? Did they ever scare you? (laughs)
2: Um, No, they never scared me. They intrigued me. Um, Again, like these questions that we kind of keep coming back to. But when I looked at them, I thought what I think a lot of people probably think, just very, very basic questions like, what is this? Mm -hmm. Like, who made it? Why, you know, who liked it? When was it okay to do this, right? These are, um, these are tableaus, these kind of playful tableaus using human cadavers or not cadavers, but skeletons, right? So, so strange, to the contemporary eye. So I think for me, that was really the hook. It was um, definitely not fear. I have seen objects in medical museums that I find really off-putting. Roish's don't have that feeling to me. there's not that feeling of, of something that we shouldn't be looking at, which I have, I have seen things that feel that way. Um, it, they're not linked to atrocity. You know, they are um, they are objects that are very beautiful. Um, and I should say too, the objects that I'm talking about no longer exist, right? So I'm talking, talking about these fetal skeleton tableaus. As far as we know, these objects do not exist any longer. They didn't make, they didn't make it till the, the comment to, to our time today. So we're looking at the illustrations by Cornelius Hoiberts and, and maybe his illustrations are so great and that's why we love it, I don't know. Um, but they're very, very strange. And I think to me, when I see something strange and when these strange things in particular, as I put it, flicker on edges, right? Um, it What I mean by that is these objects, these drawings of objects anyway, really challenge for me, kind of our basic assumptions about what what the world is and how we divide it, right? So these flickering categories include death and beauty, you know these are things that we kind of think of that don't go together, but they do go together here art and medicine, religion and medicine, body and soul, um, all of these things are living simultaneously in this object in a way that, our culture tells us is impossible. And yet here it is. And so to me, I feel like that's what pulled me in. And then and then it's just a sense of imagination, right? I think all history and all of our pursuit of understanding history is an imaginative act. We cannot know the past really, but we want to, we really, really want to. And I think these objects kind of elicit that in me and in other people too, just a, a desire to understand the mind that appreciated these and made them and whether there might be something to be learned for us there you know we we now divide all these things out is there something that we can take from from the past that maybe um could be meaningful and useful for us as well
1: so could you give us um, maybe a bit of a glimpse uh, into some of the creations that you like really like and do we have any idea of the thought processes behind them yeah. So oh.
2: the things that Roy is best known for are these fetal skeleton tableaus. And um, they are, um, I hope you'll include an image when, when you do the posts on your podcast, just so people can see it. But again, if not, go to Google Images, look up Frederick Reich, and you'll see it. Um, they're compositions in which you have like four or five fetal skeletons who are posed in these Kind of whimsical, almost dancing, like, um, attitudes, um, in one of them, a fetal skeleton holds a mayfly and a may- mayfly was a symbol of ephemerality. People believed at that time, at least they did in the time of, of the ancient Greeks, um, when they became called ephemera, that they only lived a day. So it's this sense that, um, uh, this fetal skeleton is lamenting its own short life. And of course it had a short life, right? It was, a, it died as a, as a, before it was born or it was aborted or whatever happened, right? Miscarried. Um, another one is holding a handkerchief made out of mesentery, which is one of the tissues of the body, uh, weeping into it because of his short life. And all of them have these little quotes, none of which I know by heart, unfortunately, but talking about, oh, you know, the things of this world are short-lived and woe is, you know, they're, they're very religious. They're very um, uh, memento mori themed about contemplating death at the same time. And of course this idea of mixing the contemplation of mortality with science was not, only Roche at that time. Uh, You see this in a lot of medical illustration, including Vesalius. you know, it's uh, up until the 18th century, this is, this is quite popular. So before medical science had started using the anatomized and skeletal body to tell its story of science, these images were already being used to talk about mortality, um, usually in a religious context. Um, So yeah, they're, they're um, unfortunately, as I said, they don't exist any longer. But these illustrations really capture something. And when you see them, I think many people, well, I think some people are just like, oh, my God, this is horrible. <laughs> Get it away from <laughs> me. And I think other people like myself and the the readers of this book are deeply intrigued and want to know more.
1: So you mentioned that um, he sort of combined both science and religion within his creations. How did he manage that?
2: Well, he managed that because as far as I understand, science and religion were not, they they weren't seen as separate at that time. And this is part of what the lens of anatomical, I'm sorry, the lens of intellectual history has really helped me to see. Um, So at that time, science, as we now think of it, wasn't really existent. It was more what we would call natural philosophy. And natural philosophy was a way of looking at the world in order to understand it, that used methods that we would consider scientific alongside methods that we would think of as magical or spiritual. They were all kind of seen as parts of understanding the world. And in a way that that has been stripped away as we, you know, get into the 18th and 19th century more so. Um, So I feel like what we're seeing when we see these objects by Frederick Reich is we're seeing uh, the way people looked at the world before um, before religion was stripped from science, you know, right now it's unthinkable. We think of it as an either or equation, right? That was not the case at that time. And there was even a sense where people would come to Royce's cabinet and say that this was the best argument against atheism to see God's creation. Mm. And if you think of how people thought about the human body at that time, you know, this is a time when people, most people still believed, in religion, you know, um, unless you were a really radical free thinker. Um, but in the context of the Christian worldview, God created the human body in his own image. So to know the body of humans was to know the mind of God. So up until a certain point, human anatomy is tinged with this metaphysical and religious importance um, that for me, it took me a long time to wrap my head around. And um, I really wrapped my head around it when I was working on a project about these wax anatomical figures called the anatomical Venuses, and I think until I could understand that religious component, I really couldn't understand a lot of the art that I was seeing in in anatomy books and in medical museums up until a certain time.
1: And what was the response of his contemporaries, yeah. both within medical field, but also you know in a wider sense in the public? Yeah.
2: This is, this is what's so incredible from what I've read. Um, the only people who didn't like what Royce was doing were people who were jealous of him professionally. Mm. Uh, this is, the people loved it. They came to his museum. They said it was, like I said, um, it proved the existence of God that he was this great, great master who could preserve objects forever. Um, he was renowned. He was famed for this and not in a way tinged with, uh, scandal, <laughs> you know, the way we would think of, you know, Gunter van Huggins, who does body worlds today, right? There was not, so far as I can see, any element of that whatsoever. And, you know, I think it also speaks that Peter the Great came and visited this collection and bought the entire thing for some incredible sum, to give you a sense of how esteemed it was, right?
1: Hmm, interesting. So it was slightly controversial, but not in a sense that people were very against it, so it was more on a level of being jealous <laughs> That's what,
2: that's what his biographer says. You know, I haven't done that research myself, but that's what I've read. That only the people who, there were people who professionally hated him. And those people kind of talk smack about what he did in his collection. But otherwise it was, he was considered a monument to, to Amsterdam. He was, you know, he was a native son who had done well. People loved what he did.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com.
1: So what did he say himself about his works? What inspired him to create some of the um, specific, um, perhaps, uh, you know, the works of art or works of yeah. art and science.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. From what I understand, kind of the themes we've been hitting on uh, one of them, he really, really wanted to create anatomical specimens for the general public that were not disgusting, that didn't look like dead things. So that's why he perfected this, um this incredible um, skill at, at pushing the, you know, basically using a, a syringe in order to put this this wax, this colored wax into the the different vessels in order to create the image of life, and he, you know, taking great care to cover up any place that you would see something that looked like a corpse. So you'll see if you look at his wet specimen. So a wet specimen again is like a preserved human uh, or animal part or piece in liquid and you'll see that whenever there's a place that part of that is cut away that's covered in beautiful lace you know so he's he's going and he's quoted as saying you know that he's it's very important to him to take the distasteful aspect out so that people can learn and also see god's creation and understand god's creation so there's that and then i think you know, the other way of looking at his work is in the context of the Dutch Vanitas tradition, um, Vanitas mundi. So these were paintings that were part of the still life tradition. They were very, very popular in Amsterdam at this time. And they were... Um, still lives that focused on mortality and the brevity of life. I get all still lives due to a sense. And we know that because still lives in French are nature mort, which means dead nature. So there's an element of capturing time and the sadness of beautiful flowers, for example, that bloom but for a moment, right? So he's playing with those same themes, only he's using human remains to do it.
1: So what significance did his work have then And then perhaps what does it have now? My
2: feeling is then they were seen as marvels, you know, like he was thought again as the Rembrandt of anatomical preparation. He was so artful and he created such beauty and blew people's minds. And also with his ability to show these very, very subtle structures of the human body that no one could do. He was a, a really a wizard of, of embalming to the sense that, as I said, somebody accused him of it being black magic at some point. Um, So I think at that time they were seen as beautiful and fascinating objects that taught people about the human body and about about, um, the physical world around us. And also were laudably um, contemplative and uh, urged the viewer to contemplate the brevity of their own life through accentuating the brevity of these fetuses' lives, right? And I would say today, I see them more as this portal that allows us to time travel to a different way of thinking because they are, I think there is something so wonderful and useful about objects that make us, that really confuse us from the past, that obviously we're okay in the past, right? It really tells us something about how much we've changed as a culture since around 1700 to the sense that these are now completely bizarre and macabre and read with a certain perversity that, from what I have read, did not exist at all in his own time.
1: Did his work ever inspire other people to do something similar in the previous, previous times, but also nowadays? I wonder yeah. if any of the creators nowadays actually can trace their origin to him.
2: <laughs> I think that's a great question. And I definitely have seen, I know people who he's been amused to, for sure. Um, there's um, a preparator I know in New York who's who's based um, pieces on him. My friend Eleanor Crook, who illustrated the book. Um, one of the things, one of the things we put in the book was a well. I should say this is another another thing he inspired. In the 19th century, there was an Italian poet called Leopardi, and he wrote kind of a short, funny, uh, like mock operetta about. Royche being in his home lab when all of his, his mummies came back to life for an hour and could tell him what death was about. And yeah. it's this really fabulous piece we included in the book because I think it's it's a wonderful, exactly what you're speaking to, right? Showing how Royce goes on to be a muse for so long and really fascinate people. And my friend Eleanor Crook, who is a medical artist, she's a sculptor and she also does art for um, medical museums. She created a new set of etchings Um, inspired by Roche and you can see just how much she's inspired by those oddly adorable fetal skeletons, you know, (laughs) adorable and macabre in equal measure, you might say. Um, And I also know a woman called Nevena Wittelun, who used to work at, maybe she's still there. I'm not sure. Medical Museum in Berlin and she created Roche inspired tableau. That's very beautiful. That's still on display at their museum. So he definitely inspires. But of course, now it's ethically tricky and complicated to to use human remains in artwork. So there's that, right?
1: Yeah, and that was my next question. So what do you see in the future of the anatomical art?
2: That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if students are still using, I guess they must be still using medical Textbooks, right? To understand mm-hmm. the body, I I know you know when we look at the history of anatomical art, many people think of the book Gray's Anatomy as kind of ushering in the modern or you know the contemporary age of anatomical art. And so, if anyone out there is familiar with Gray's Anatomy, you'll know that these are very static, um, affect affectless um, images that are that are clinical and clean. And when you look at Roche, Roche was part of a Baroque tradition of anatomical art that was not like that. So going back to Vesalius, who's considered the father of modern anatomy, he published a book in 1543, which kind of changed um, anatomy into a more of a uh, science as we think of it now, but still included a lot of memento mori imagery. But he, the way that he chose to depict his anatomical specimens were all based on dissection were as if they were alive again, dealing with this perennial problem of anatomical art of any sort, which is how do you distance um, the artwork or the objects from the way that we acquire medical knowledge, which is of course cadavers, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that, that Vesalius did this is he had these flayed humans and skeletons hanging out and you know acting as if alive on these beautiful tuscan landscapes and this is the tradition that many many medical museums kept i'm sorry many many medical illustrations continued up until up until the 1750s at least um, and then it kind of went longer for some you know but then gray's anatomy was published in, the, in 18 say 1870s originally or 1850s i can't remember and it it doesn't have anything that looks as if alive. these are very very simple um, pared down images of cadavers um, just for teaching and that's kind of now, what we now think of as what normal anatomical illustration should be so i maybe it's just gonna i don't know if anyone will make any more anatomical art i don't know i know it's a great question what do you think galena
1: so I was wondering about more of a digital realm, really, mm. It's it mm. would be able to maybe even recreate some of the Roche's uh, works. Uh, do you think the tableaus uh, can have this kind of um, information yeah. you know, in them that we can try? I, I do. And I think, you know, I think
2: maybe some very um, accomplished 3D modeler out there who's listening, I think it would make a great 3D print. I mean, if you could manage it, I don't know how you would, but they, I would love to see them in three dimensions.
1: And a sort of then following on from, from this theme, now thinking about the wider society and the bigger questions, do you think that um, perhaps them using these kind of technologies will enable us to address these very difficult and um uncomfortable you know uh, topics especially when it comes to uh, childbirth or um, you know you cannot take a fetus nowadays and put it into tableau
2: yeah so just let me be clear on your question uh, you're, how could could it
1: help us in some way is that what you're is that what you're asking so whether they um we will be able to address these difficult Mm. questions using a different approach approach to it rather than doing it as it was done in the centuries ago.
2: Yeah, well, I definitely think, you know, as someone who's always loved history and uses it as a running off point, it's a wonderful way to complicate our own assumptions about the world, to realize that only... Three hundred years ago, someone thought so differently from us that we can look at something and not be able to understand how it could ever be acceptable. Right? That tells us that our attitudes about death and the body have changed a lot, so considerably that these objects now seem foreign to us. And they fill medical museums around the world, not to the extreme that Roche does. But human specimens, um, skeletons, posed—all of these things—are part of our world until. Until around 1850, that's when Gray's Anatomy was published, right? So to me, they tell us about another way of looking at the world that maybe has something to teach us, that maybe is richer or maybe is more subtle, or maybe brings things together that we've divided out in some way. Um, so to me, they always feel like object lessons that can tell us about something something we might have lost that might be worth rethinking.
1: That's an excellent point. Even thinking about the tableaus and these subjects that uh, Roche has, it really makes us question ourselves uh, and really confront our own uh, sort of way, ways of thinking that perhaps uh, we have confined ourselves to.
2: Yeah, I love that phrase, confined ourselves to. And I think that really rings true for me. There's a sense that um, our attitudes about death have become very... Um, limited in the past 150 or so years. And the sense, you know, that the only appropriate way to deal with death in the body is this kind of sober reverence is not how people have thought at all times and all places. And, um, I see some pushback in the real world with um, burial traditions with, you know, I, I I teach a lot of classes at morbid anatomy about thinking about our own death. Right. And one thing that a lot of people talk about is how they would like to have a funeral that has a sense of fun, that has music that has, that's about them and who they really were not this kind of saintized version version of them that we encounter in a lot of, at least in the United States death practices. So I think, I think there, there is pushback against this. And I think, you know, morbid anatomy and what we do at morbid anatomy is part of that. We're part of this greater zeitgeist. Um, And I think, I often think we're going back to Switzerland. We're talking about Switzerland right before we started this recording. Carl Jung, who's one of my favorite thinkers comes from Switzerland, of course. And, you know, the way that he described artists and art practice, he said, one role of the artist is to take, that which has been relegated to the cultural shadow and to bring it up, bring it to light because it helps create balance in a culture. Because when something is pushed out of our consciousness, it doesn't just go away. It just gets repressed. Right. Right. So something has gone on in our culture where death is this repressed part of our reality. It doesn't mean it's gone away. It doesn't mean we're not going to die, but we're not to talk about it anymore or look at it or take pleasure in looking at it. And I think there's something about looking at these sorts of things from the past that remind us um, that there was another time, that there was another way of looking at the world, that in fact, our way of looking at the world is very, very new and very reliant on where we are with medicine now, This the whole complex of hospitals and funeral parlors that take bodies out of our sight. Um, the fact we don't live, most of us, with um, extended family anymore, so we don't see the older people die. We don't butcher our own animals. So death has become, in the last... 150 or so years something very exotic and other and outside of our daily experience and thus it's scary i think in righteous time death would not have been scary it would have been part of everyday life and i think that is the bigger thing you know that is so strange to us today that bodies were prosaic they were just part of life just like death was
1: and what discoveries in your process of preparation of this book and project surprised you the most (laughs) Hmm.
2: That's a good question. I think, as with any editing, the surprises come from how things fit together and what themes start to emerge and what people are interested in. Um, and I think what I was really struck by and what I love about Roych versus many other academic topics that I've been involved in is the passion people have for him that he elicits a real passion because everyone that I tapped to be a part of this book most of whom had already published on Reusch before have like a childlike wonder about him you know and it comes through in the essays so I think that's one thing I really really love like one of our um, contributors Bert van der Roemer uh, who is in the Netherlands he um he has an article of where I, I had him write about, when I first met him, I'd read one of his very straightforward academic articles about rotation. and I loved it, and I met him when I was in Amsterdam. And he showed me these drawings he had done when he tried to recreate Roche's specimen one by one. He drew every specimen he read about so he could visualize it. That's the kind of obsessive um fascination and childlike fascination, I would say, he draws from people. And so he writes about that and his process with that in the book, which I think is wonderful. I think Roy, he's so strange to us that he really inspires. Um, and I, I love that. There's a sense of imagination, a sense of wonder, a sense of trying to understand something that's so beyond our ability to understand right now. Um yeah, I guess that was my biggest surprise, is just the kind of joyousness of even these academic papers.
1: And what is your go-to creation of ruches that you can talk about at dinner parties? <laughs> the fetal
2: skeleton tableaus for sure those are are the things they they sum it up more than i mean his wet specimens are really beautiful and he's done so many really beautiful things but when you look at those fetal skeleton tableaus i guarantee i don't guarantee because maybe maybe you're very experienced in the world of medical art but if you're new you're going to look at that and you're going to say what the hell is this how could it ever have existed which for me i think is the great seduction of history right it's through an object that draws you in because you are so blown away by its otherness that it makes you go down this rabbit hole in order to try to understand and i think that's that's that kind of object lesson aspect of these objects in the past that they they can open a portal for us to passionately be engaged in trying to understand something beyond our current awareness
1: Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us a bit about your next project that you're working on?
2: Yeah. So my next book is a book about (laughs) a similarly strange historical moment. So another of my mentors was a man named Mel Gordon. And Mel Gordon, some of your listeners might know, he was a very prolific author. He published a book Grand Guignol, which is French horror theater of the 19th century, that really changed my attitudes about what history could be when I read it, when I found it as a young person. And we became friends later in life. And before, he unfortunately, he, he died early. And we had been working on a book about these cabarets of death. So in the 19th century, in the turn of the century, Paris uh, turned from the 18th to the 19th century. I'm sorry, 19th to the 20th century. Sorry for that banging. Uh, the 19th to the 20th century. there were these cabarets there were three of them one was the cabaret of nothingness one was the cabaret of heaven one was the cabaret of hell and on a evening you could go and have drinks and special cuisine and all of these and um, it was kind of like an amusement park version of different aspects of the afterlife where you could also enjoy food and drink and nudity so mel wrote a book about that and i'm editing it and putting together um some illustrations for that and laying it out as well and then the main thing I spend my time on now actually is classes so Morbid Anatomy this project that I do with COVID we went online and when we went online um, we started to commission many of our community members and many of our favorite thinkers around the world that teach classes for us. And so that is really my great pleasure right now is um, working with people to develop classes for what we're kind of calling the Morbid Anatomy Institute, playfully. Uh, But we have at least 30 classes on our website right now on everything from making your own burial shroud to um, making your own memento mori, to making a day of the dead offrenda, to... um, well, all sorts of things. And it's a great, great pleasure.
1: And what's the best way for our listeners to, lo- to learn more about your work and also your book and uh, maybe a couple of those websites that um, uh, people can really turn to?
2: Yeah, so you can find out more about me and my work at joannaebenstein.com. And you can find out more about Morbid Anatomy and what we offer at morbidanatomy.org. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoy the book.